Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Uh, those of you who listen to the show know that it's platformed by the Searcy Institute. The Searcy Institute is at the vanguard of the classical Christian education renewal, of which I am a proponent. They are hosting a fall regional conference in Atlanta, Georgia, on October 20th and 21st. It's actually going to be in Powder Springs, which is kind of the northeast part of Atlanta. The conference is organized around a quote from C.S. Lewis, who said, We are too easily satisfied, quote, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We would love to have you join us. I will be at the Searcy Conference in Atlanta in Powder Springs on October 20th and 21st. If you would want more information and you would like to register, Go to CirceInstitute.org, and Circe is spelled C-I-R-C-E. That's CirceInstitute.org. Hope to see you there. Oh, by no means, honest Ventidius, you mistake my love. I gave it freely ever, and there's none can truly say he gives if he receives. If our betters played that game, we must not dare to imitate them. Faults that are rich are fair. A noble spirit. <laughs> Nay, my lords, ceremony was but devised at first to set a gloss on faint deeds, hollow welcomes, recanting goodness, sorry it is shown. But where there is true friendship, there needs none. Pray sit. More welcome are ye to my fortunes than my fortunes to me. My lord, we always have confessed it. Ah, uh-huh. confessed it? Hanged it, have ye not? Oh, Apermantus, you are welcome. No, you shall not make me welcome. I come to have thee thrust me out of doors. Fie, thou art a churl. You've got a humour there does not become a man. Tis much to blame. They say, my lords, ira furor bravis est, but yond man is ever angry. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Plays, The Thing. You are joining us for William Shakespeare's Timon of Athens. I am joined by my friend, Todd Albee. Todd, we were talking off the air 
It's been all, we have been friends for almost 30 years. Almost 30 years. I mean, a good five years before we were born. It was amazing. <laughs> That's exactly right. A good five years since we were born. Um, I am so glad that you're on the show. I've been wanting to bring you on the show for a long time and you've been listening to the show for a little while. I have been. I think I've been listening for all five and a half years. Although I have to say, having uh, watched and read this play, that it's probably a good thing you didn't start with the first seven weeks being on Timon of Athens. I know. Timon of Athens is a tough play. It's a tough play. I am going to ask you a quiz at the end of the show about the popularity of Timon of Athens because okay. they asked the British public, what plays have you seen? What plays have you read? What plays have you heard? And Timon of Athens, you know, of course, falls somewhere was in one the of 37 plays. It was, <laughs> it was one of them. That's exactly right. So the audio that we heard at the top of the show was between Timon and Epimetus. And those last two lines were from Epimetus. You shall not make me welcome. I come to have thee thrust me out of doors. I played that audio because it's, of course, where the play begins. And it's a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's to come. Todd, I'm going to start with a really quick plot overview. This is going to be the shortest plot overview that we've ever done on the show. And I'm going to kind of go back to the plot and highlight a few things here and there. Here's the very short description. Wealthy and popular, Timon of Athens helps his friends, gives many gifts, and holds a feast. After ignoring his true friend's warnings, Timon runs out of money and none of his friends will help him. He runs away to a cave where he curses humanity, finds gold, funds someone to destroy Athens, and dies. <laughs> wow. Is it any wonder this. that this is not ranking in like the top three of Shakespeare's plays? No, indeed. Okay. I had never seen or read this play before preparing for this show. And I will tell you, I was dialed toward low expectations and I was surprised. I enjoyed the first half of this play. I didn't love it. This is not Macbeth. This is not Hamlet. This is not Lear. But I enjoyed the first half of this play. And then when Timon goes to the beach in his kind of... um a highly cynical, nihilistic uh, timeshare scenes, I kind of, it kind of dropped off for me. But here's the first question that I have for you. It seems like this play from the very beginning demands that we make a decision about Timon. I think we have to choose one of two things. A, He's a rich and spoiled aristocrat. No concept of hard work, how to manage wealth or anything like that. The other thing, the other, the other choice is, sure, he's wealthy, but he has good intentions, but he's really naive. And I think that as a viewer, as a listener, as a reader, we kind of have, we're forced to make that decision pretty quickly. And the rest of the play is kind of dictated. Our evaluation of the rest of the play is dictated by th 
that early choice. Did you feel that way? I did. I think that when you when you start thinking of him as purely a spoiled aristocrat, his reaction to everyone looks a lot more like injury than it looks like um, anger. Yeah. And yet, if you read it the other way, that he was, in fact, um, a bit naive, then he comes across much more angry. Yes. Right. Okay. So, depending on the choice that you make at the beginning, either spoiled aristocrat or naive wealthy man, you also kind of have to make a choice about his friends, right? Right. Like if his friends are taking advantage of his naivete, then they're the kind of antagonists of this story. They are the suitors in Odysseus. They're just taking his money, eating his meals, using his place, and we have no respect for them. But if they're, you know, kind of wise people, right, right, right. And he's not paying back their bills and he's irresponsible and spoiled. Then you're like, well, maybe the friends are a little bit stingy, but they're not bad people. Everybody kind of requires at some point that you pay them their debts. I think that act three kind of made me come down on the side of them as bad people. Because when you have Lucullus basically refusing to loan him money because there is no surety, because it's a bad investment. Yeah. You've got Lucius playing the game of, oh, I would love to give him money, but drat, I just spent it all. Uh, When you've got Sempronius, who is, first of all, annoyed to be asked, but he seems to be even more annoyed to be asked last. I think that that gives them a little more of an evil character than than purely the the clueless uh, naive. How dare you ask me for money? What number was I in the lineup of people that you asked Last? How dare you ask me last? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty petulant. It's pretty sad. Okay. It is. Do you, here's the very simple question. Do you like Timon? First, th- first three acts. Do you like Timon? I think he's the sort of person you kind of pat on the head and you say, oh, Timon, that's kind of my take on him, the first three acts. And then it pivots rather aggressively in acts four uh-huh. and five. Does it pivot for you at the banquet scene? It's interesting. I think it pivots when he is going outside. It's, it's before he decides to go to the banquet when he basically says, how dare you keep me locked in my house and then walks outside and everybody's presenting him with bills of fare and, and the debts and so forth. And then he kind of runs back. I think that was the point of inflection in time yeah. as a sympathetic character and as an understandable person through that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just a little plot catch up. The beginning of the play, as we heard a little bit, there's a banquet. Timon is hosting the banquet. Everybody comes great meal. There's a masquerade dance. It's wonderful. Ladies come in and dance. Everybody's having a great time. Then everybody goes about their way. During that play, Timon's um, servant Flavius is saying, hey, master, you got no money. And and Timon is just like, okay, I'm not going to worry about that. Come on, come on, come on. Take your, take your sad story somewhere else. And then act two, all of his debts begin to show up against him and Timon, you know, creditors are calling in their loan. Timon expects help from his friends, but they all start refusing him money and he gets more and more and more angry. Finally, he's furious. He invites them to a banquet. And I thought 
oh, this is going to be kind of nice. He's going to be like, listen, friends, I'm in trouble. Can you help me? You know, I've served you many great meals. Here's an opportunity for you to pay me back. But no, the pot lids are lifted off by the servants and what's inside? Nothing but water and stones. That's the meal. And everyone kind of tries to play it off as a joke at first, but finally they realize what time it has done to them. He's so angry with them. He throws them out of the house. He curses Athens and he exiles himself to a wilderness, a wilderness on a beach. I was with them. I think I was with him until he served water and stones. I thought there's still a possibility here. But then after the water and stones, I just couldn't stay with him, Todd. No, I think he's not only a more sympathetic, but a more interesting character up until that point. But he becomes kind of a cynical wretch and not very interesting as a cynical wretch. Yeah, not very interesting as a cynical wretch. That is the problem for me. That is the problem with the play, because the last the second half of the play, it is just like a gripe fest. He complains against everyone. He lives kind of like, who is the, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the philosopher that lived in a barrel, the cynic, Diogenes, the cynic lived in a barrel. He's kind of this Diogenes character. He has no time for anybody. But Diogenes kind of had a life philosophy. You know, his life philosophy is want not and you will suffer not. But the trouble with Timon is he he has not prepared himself in any way for that sort of philosophy. And so all he's left with is just gripes. And I think you're the playwright, but my perception is that Shakespeare could have lightened that up somewhat. We saw that in the scene with Alcibiades and the fool, where the fool was able to make a joke, but it just gets heavy and stays heavy. I know. I know. So, um, in my preparation, this is one of the plays that they think was co-written. Did you did you read anything about this? I did. I think the the scholarship is is split whether Thomas Middleton helped, whether whether this was Shakespeare alone. I kind of want Thomas Middleton to have helped yes, because I don't I want to sell the name way. Shakespeare. Totally, totally. Doing this podcast, I run into that issue occasionally. Sometimes when Shakespeare appears to have unpopular beliefs like sometimes um oh gosh uh taming of the shrew like gosh this might be a little misogynistic and you're like i don't want shakespeare to be a misogynist in this play you know right um and there are other times when the quality really dips troilus and cressida i felt that way the entire time i was like please let there be some terrible co-author who mangled this play because I just can't bear to think that my hero wrote this thing. It's just not good. This play is not as bad as Troilus and Cressida, but it suffers in the second half, as you were saying. It really suffers. And apparently it was somewhat topical because at the time everybody knew that James I was running out of money. And so this was one of those times when he spoke into, I think, some of the challenges of the day. I just don't think he had much interesting to say. Yeah. Uh, unless you're saying that that the king is a bloodthirsty cynical wretch, I, uh-huh. I don't, which is the antithesis the antithesis of how how Shakespeare wrote. He was always so clever to dance yes. around 
the the regents of his time, the kings and the queens, and and to be so on the nose seems a little uh, unprecedented in his other. Unlike him, yeah. unlike him. And I hear that is the part of the reason that they think perhaps this was Middleton as co-author because that was something that he was known for, a kind of like oh. hard-edged skepticism among his characters. And it certainly shows up. Okay, it shows up most strongly for me in the character that we heard from at the beginning, Epimetus. Mm -hmm. So Epimetus shows up late for this opening uh, banquet, and he has hard things to say, really hard things to say to time. And he's the one, aside from the servants, who is most keen to kind of shake time and, and wake him up. When you read Epimetus, did you think, okay, finally, somebody's like speaking the truth here? Or was it too early in the play to really recognize that this guy's a truth teller? He is just kind of hard boiled and kind of an irritant. Did you? That's did a great question. Know? I kind of saw him more in the hard boiled. And then he never pivoted because when he visits, yeah. Uh, Time and after he has left the city, he's kind of in that "I told you so" mode. Like uh -huh. he, he, I, I just felt that there were very few sympathetic characters. You've got Flavius, who's sympathetic. You've got Alcibiades, yep. who at least seems to be a man of of honor, and you've got a bunch of unlikable people populating yeah. the rest of the play. Yeah. Um. Let's camp on Alcibiades for a second. Do you remember anything about Alcibiades from kind of like the ancient record? I don't. I wish I, I did. He, he was a friend of Socrates. He shows up in Plutarch's lives. You remember Plutarch wrote these lives. He's a Greek historian, and he would, he would write these things called parallel lives, and he would pair up a Greek and a Roman that had maybe like a similar temperament or a similar kind of life plot. Alcibiades was a Greek, obviously, friends with Socrates, and he was paired up in Plutarch with Coriolanus, if I'm not mm. mistaken, Martius Caius Coriolanus. Martius Caius Coriolanus is best remembered as a great Roman general who gets alienated from Rome. All the plebes are kind of wanting him to be a little bit more humble. And Coriolanus is like, I'm a great man. Why would I be humble? I don't, I'm, a, I'm an eagle. I don't fly with the crows, you guys. So Alcibiades is paired with Coriolanus because Alcibiades also turns and marches on Athens. So I found Coriolanus to be a really interesting insertion in this play because Alcibiades is a shapeshifter in, in Plutarch and in Plato, he kind of, he's a, he's a fascinating character because on the one hand, he has a lot of integrity. He like really stands up for what he believes in. But on the other hand, when his ego is threatened in any way, he'll do kind of whatever it takes to get vengeance to have his name, you know, again, glorified. So when Alcibiades shows up in this play, I have him marked in my mind as the chameleon shapeshifter. And he's going to be, he's going to betray Timon. But that's not really what happens. It doesn't. 
It doesn't at all. Do you know in history, was he also exiled from Athens due to? He was. Okay. And then it was yeah. for sticking up for um, one of his soldiers who had committed some crime of, of some sort? I think so. That's where it's a little bit fuzzy for me. In my memory, he's not sticking up for time. And I think that might be Shakespeare, you know, fictionalizing the historical record. But again, I, I should have like looked up, um, I should have looked up Plato's account and Plutarch's account before we did this podcast. I remember Alcibiades is pretty famous for showing up in Plato's symposium. Big dinner scene. He shows up drunk and he's like, oh my gosh, I love you, Socrates, so much. And Socrates is really nice and Socrates loves him, but he's also kind of like, bro, <laughs> like get it together. <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I, I I was really surprised. I for me, Alcibiades is one of my favorite characters in this play, maybe along with Flavius. They kind of I respected him. So I, then you'll find that obviously the, the scene where Alcibiades can't recognize time, it is almost this delightfully ironic thing for the ultimate shapeshifter not to notice the shapeshifter in front of That's him. That's a great point. That's a great point. Um, an interesting thing about Timon, mm -hmm. no family whatsoever. Did you notice this? I did notice it. And I, th I wondered if that was one of the reasons his character su suffered um, in, in development, because he didn't have anyone who was a foil or anyone to humanize him. Um, Flavius, as a servant, he's, we, we meet three or four of his servants, but we don't really ever see him in a human relationship. But then yeah. again, that could be the whole point, that he doesn't yeah. have human relationships. He has mercantilist relationships exactly right exactly right which makes me it makes me wonder if this is uh, i don't want to say a satire for me it does not read like a satire though some people call it like a dramatic tragic satire um but there's a way in which you can read it almost like a morality tale i don't think Shakespeare sure. was keen to write morality tales, but this one kind of lends itself to a real warning against, as you said it, like mercantilist relationships, which to me would make sense of Acts 4 and 5 because he turns against gold, doesn't he? He does. I mean, when he finds the gold, even before he gets people looking for it, he reburies the majority of it and only takes a portion yeah. of it. And then he seems to recognize immediately that everybody is only in this for the gold. And so when the when the thieves come to try and steal it, he, in a way, he uses money intelligently for the first time in the entire play because he goes ahead and and preempts their theft by giving yeah. them money. Right. Right, right. I'm going to read um, a little bit of the monologue from his time on the beach when he discovers the gold. Here it is. Uh, time, I believe this is Act 4. What is here? Gold? Yellow, glittering, precious gold? No, gods. I am no idle terrorist. I don't know that one. Roots, you clever heavens. This much of this, thus much of this will make black, white, Foul, fair, wrong, right, base, noble, old, young, coward, valiant, ha, you gods. Why this? Why this, you gods? Why? This will lug your priests and servants from your sides, pluck stout men's pillows from below their heads. This yellow slave will knit and break religions, 
bless the accursed, make the whore leprosy adored, place thieves and give them title, knee and approbation with senators on the bench. This is it that makes it weaponed widow wed again. She whom the spittle house and ulcerous sores would cast the gorge at, this embalms and spices to the April day again. Wow. It's really good. It is. This this yellow slave, I think, is like... So you, you really think that Shakespeare wrote the monologue and Middleton wrote the rest of it? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so, yeah. Yeah, I, I can imagine like Shakespeare pulling Middleton aside and saying like, hey, can we talk about the plot points in four and five. I just, I don't know. I think maybe we could, there, there may be some opportunities there. Right. That's great. But Middleton didn't really hear him out. I'm afraid. No, I don't think so. I don't, I think he definitely got his way. Well, it, it, it is interesting that when a, a lot of people struggle with something being taken away, even the sight of it returning becomes you know, psychologically traumatizing. And yeah. so forth. You, you you find that with athletes who who've lost the ability to play, who stop being fans in certain certain contexts and so forth, just because it's too painful to to revisit whether that was the injury in a in in that setting, or too painful to look at the money when you've when you've spent all your money on people you thought friends. Yeah, yeah. It, time instruct me is a little bit of a job like character in a way i mean i can't press this too far but in that he loses everything now in the old testament job job loses everything through calamity because the devil has gone he's asked god to put job on trial and he does and he strips everything away from job so it's none of job's doing and it's very much a theodicy because why does this good man suffer timon is very different in that the things that he loses he loses by his own kind of mismanagement naivete whatever you want to call it but i still think that like both men were put on trial in a way and they're their top advisors are their friends and their responses are diametrically opposed yeah. to each other. I, just to continue with that analogy, which I really like, it would almost be as if the book of Job pivoted when Job's wife says, curse God and die, time of Athens, curse God. And this is what came out of it. Right, right. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly how I saw it. The play turns really cynical, and I noticed this this language pattern that showed up over and over and over. Um, men as beasts, men as animals, men as dogs. Did you did you pick up on this? Absolutely. I think the one of the more famous lines was that no beast would ever treat. And I, I can't find the quote uh, at my fingertips, but basically, beasts don't treat each other as badly as men do. Yeah. Yeah. Even the most heartless of beasts would not, would not behave in this way. I, I'm thinking about Shakespeare's hardest plays. I'm thinking about Lear. Lear stands before his daughter. He wants to be adored. Two of his daughters 
give him lip service and tell him how wonderful that he is and the daughter that he loves the most, Cordelia, doesn't give lip service to him. And he breaks with her in the entire rest of the plays, the fallout from that. And even in that like dark, cynical mood, even though the body count in Lear is as high as like any body count in any Shakespeare play, there's a silver stream kind of running underneath it, which is like this deep affection between Lear and Cordelia that carries the whole play forward. There's this desire that we have that they reunite, that Lear apologized, that he that he come back to Cordelia and that he repent. And it happens and it's also kind of, and it also doesn't happen in a way at the end of Lear. Your point about time and not having any relationships that we want to see sewn back together, I think is such a great, it's such a great point because all we're really left with is the cynicism, this gripe, this complaint against the beasts that are human beings. Absolutely. We don't have any emotional investment in any of the characters. And so there isn't even an anticipation of payoff at the end. And then for the payoff to literally be the title character dies and we read his epitaph. Uh huh. It was interesting. The first time I read the epitaph, I must admit, I wasn't even feeling much in the way of emotion for Timon. Right. It was, I'm reading this horrible, what a wretch am I? I was hated by everyone I knew. And it was like, oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> too bad. There wasn't a whole lot more. Right. Because I wasn't as, I wasn't emotionally invested in Timon because I wasn't emotionally invested in his story. Todd, explain to me why Timon dies off stage. I don't know that explain, I can. I mean, that, as an as a artistic choice, that one befuddled me. Like, we've been with this guy nearly every scene, probably every scene, but maybe four. And we've gotten to know him pretty well. We know his kind of mode. And we're with Alcibiades. And we get his epitaph. We get Timon's epitaph, and we don't see his actual death. It was and isn't really it fascinating too that in Act Five, when the senators come and try and bring him back, he almost gives you the stagecraft for his death when he tells them to hang themselves from the tree before he cuts it down. You can oh, right. easily see that showing up one scene later, even if it was just you know behind a screen with with a shadow. Of it doesn't have to be death on screen, but there's almost no payoff there. Yeah. And so then when the soldier finds the gravestone and he does a rubbing because he can't read it, it's like, wow, that's a lot of work and a lot of plot just to get the epitaph, I guess. And maybe that's what it was <laughs> yeah. about, is they needed to have those words brought back as the epitaph, and that was the way they chose to do it. Maybe. But he could have easily made those as a dying declaration, too. You know? Absolutely, he could have. Absolutely, he could so have. If you had written the play, would you have had him die on stage? I think so. Gosh, that's an interesting. That's an interesting exercise, isn't it? Like, write Timon's death scene as if it were happening on stage, because now you've got to make choices. Who else is on stage? Is he by himself? Mm, that's that's tough. That's you know, 
a, a dying soliloquy to oneself on the beach, that's a tough call, even for Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare is probably like, yeah, I don't think I can even do that. I can have Richard III woo Queen Anne in like act two and actually get away with it despite all odds. I don't know that I can do dying cynic on beach alone, you know, like out of breath epitaph speech. I don't think I'm that good. And, and you'd actually have to choose method of death. I and mean, was this suicide? Did he starve himself? Did right, he hang himself? Right. Whatever. And then maybe that just brings more confusion into the plot. I don't know. Or maybe it tells you who is going to be on stage. If it's going to okay. be a suicide. Okay. Who is going to like, who is going to allow the suicide to happen? Well, maybe the senators and the guys who, you know, didn't loan him money maybe, but I think even they would sort of step in. Yeah. It's all it's, it's trouble. The conclusion of the play is trouble. It is indeed. Are you satisfied? By well, I was going to say, are you satisfied by the play? But I think our answer is kind of like, no. I think I'm satisfied by the first three acts. Okay, right. I'm not right. satisfied by four and five. Yeah, I'm not so so sure that I could create a plot that brings a resolution without adding something to the first three acts because I think we need some more of the human interest factor there. But still, I think they they give you a shell that you could have created something interesting. I just don't think where we ended this play and listen to me criticize the master, but I don't think it's, I just don't think it's a satisfying ending. Um, I saw a couple of previews from a Royal Shakespeare company production in which uh, Emperor Palpatine from the star Wars middle trilogy is playing Tymon and they stage it that he is a tycoon. He is a very, very wealthy man. And I was really curious to see that production. It wasn't available, so I couldn't see it. But setting him up as a tycoon at the beginning, I thought, awesome beginning. Everyone can latch onto that. Everyone can say, yeah, here's a guy who spoiled by his wealth, out of touch with reality, thinks the money faucet is never going to turn off. And then he has this terrible wake up call. But what do you do at the end? Like, what do you? Do? I don't know what you do at the end if you set him up as as this uh, tycoon. That is that, right. I, it almost becomes even less satisfying at the end. Yeah, and I think that if you if you take the tycoon as robber baron motif, okay, fine. Well, now I don't have any sympathy for the tycoon because the tycoon got to where he was by stepping over and stepping on others. And yet that's the very thing we're supposed to have be sympathetic with him about. So I would yeah. love to see that just to see how did they, how did they play? How that? they tie that up? Yeah. Yeah. They, the Royal Shakespeare company does such a brilliant job of kind of reimagining plays that I have a feeling they had a couple tricks up their sleeve and they probably pulled it off because they, they seem to pull off everything that they put their hand to, but man, even for that company, that's a really heavy lift. That it is. It's a it's a really heavy lift. Okay, it's time, Todd. We're gonna do a quiz now. It's a two parter, but you might actually know the answer to the first part of the question. Uh oh, because you might have listened to this episode, or you you might have listened to the episode in which we discussed this. The two part question is: first, name 
Shakespeare's three most popular plays according to the British public. Again, these are plays the British public has seen, read, or heard, okay? So okay. I want what you think are the top three, and then I want you to tell me where in the 37 falls Timon of Athens. I don't know the answer to this question. So my speculation is that number one will be Romeo and Juliet because it is so often taught at a younger age. So I think you've got the familiarity factor. Was that in the top three? I want you to keep going. Oh, you want me to keep going? Yep, yep. I think number two would be Hamlet. And number three, I think I'm going to go actually with A Midsummer Night's Dream. So that would be my top three. Okay, so your guesses are Romeo and Juliet, number one, Hamlet, number two, Midsummer number three. Okay, and what about the second part? Did you... So I didn't guess on Time of Athens. I don't think it's going to be in the top 30, but it's Uh probably not 37. I'll go 32. You did very well. Oh. Number one, most popular play, according to the British public, is Romeo and Juliet. Number two is not Hamlet. Hamlet is number four. Would it be Macbeth then? It's Macbeth. Okay. And number three is Midsummer Night's Dream. Wow. Midsummer Night's Dream is always for me a surprise because it's, I don't think anybody who loves Shakespeare is like, yep, that's the one. That's his play. (laughs) I think it's because my theory is there's no lead. There's kind of, four leads and so it's perfect for a high school audience and it's perfect for high school actors it's also fantastical everybody gets to wear go out and like pluck tree branches and put it in their hair it's a great play to stage for young people i think you're i think you're spot on and that's why you're not going to see an othello or a lear because a lot of people just never get exposed to it totally totally it's also why you don't see coriolanus one of my absolute a, favorites. Yes. That's a travesty. Coriolanus is a travesty. Was, was just such a wonderful discovery way too late in my life. I'm still, I'm mourning a little bit that I'm probably too old to play Coriolanus because he's, he's a warrior and he has to be athletic. But I, I still kind of hope against hope that maybe I'll get to play Coriolanus. We'll see. We'll see. Your guess about Timon in Athens, you said 32? I said 32. Out of 37, the answer is 36. Oh, really? <laughs> so it really you have, was, was Troilus and Cressida the last? No, Troilus and Cressida was uh, 30, 33. Wow. The lowest play is Pericles. Which you just did on... Which, yep. And Noah Perrin, um, one of my guests made a case that that Pericles is, if not successful as a play, still worthy of our time. I'm not sure that I agree with him, but I appreciated the gusto. But it's better than Cymbeline. Into it. Or it's better than Troilus yes. and Cressida. It's better than Cymbeline. It's better than Troilus and Cressida. So I have to I have to give him that. It should be ranked a little bit higher. Alas. Alas. Todd, I'm going to close um, with a little bit of audio from the beachside conversation um, with Timon. Timon is visited uh, by the same man who we found speaking at the top of the play, who's trying to kind of wake him up from his 
doldrums and you would think that Tymon would get a little bit more, you know, maybe he'd get some sympathy. That maybe he would get, you know, hey, you've fallen on hard times, but I'm... Epimetus is not having that. (laughs) I'm not having that. All I've got for you is just kind of like, hey, sorry, buddy. Life is tough. Give it to the beast. Be rid of the men. Hey, Todd, I really want to thank you for coming on the play. I wish that we could have offered you a better Shakespeare play. Well, thanks for welcoming me here. This has been an absolute delight. And and truthfully, watching and reading Time of Athens, it, it reminds me that, you know, even Shakespeare's dregs, they're not bad. Even Shakespeare's dregs are not bad. You're absolutely right. We're so spoiled, so spoiled that I think if we had read this by any other playwright would be like, this is good. This is really good. But we've been spoiled. We've yeah. been spoiled. Here's Timon and Pemetus from the closing act of Shakespeare's Timon of Athens. What wouldst thou do with the world, Appermantus, if it lay in thy power? Give it the beasts to be rid of the men. Wouldst thou have thyself fall in the confusion of men and remain a beast with the beasts? Aye, Timon. A beastly ambition which the gods grant thee to attain to. If thou wert the lion, the fox would beguile thee. If thou wert the lamb, the fox would eat thee. If thou wert the fox, the lion would suspect thee when peradventure thou wert accused by the ass. If thou wert the ass, thy dullness would torment thee, and still thou livedst but as a breakfast to the wolf. If thou wert the wolf, thy greediness would afflict thee, and oft thou shouldst hazard thy life with thy dinner. Wert thou the unicorn, pride and wrath would confound thee, and make thine own self the conquest of thy fury. Wert thou a bear, thou wouldst be killed by the horse. Wert thou a horse, thou wouldst be seized by the leopard. Wert thou a leopard, thou wert germane to the lion, and the spots of thy kindred were jurors on thy life. All thy safety were remotion, and thy defence... Absence. What beast couldst thou be that were not subject to a beast? And what a beast art thou already that seest not thy loss in transformation? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 